0: Time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, a podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artists' profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And now please welcome your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to
1: another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast. You know, there's a modest descriptive banner on our guest's website, which states she is an accomplished media and music industry professional with experience as a publicist. That experience also includes a concert promoter, radio host, musician, producer, and journalist. Her name is Lydia Liebman. Lydia, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Alan. I'm so excited to be on your show.
1: Let me begin uh, the conversation, if you don't mind, with a little bit of an artist-musician knock-knock joke.
2: (laughs) Okay, hit me. (laughs) All right.
1: Knock-knock.
2: Who's there?
1: Without me.
2: Without me who?
1: (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Uh (laughs) Very good one. That's a good one. I'll have to use that.
1: Would that be a good description of the importance of really a great publicist to a jazz artist?
2: <laughs> it's a it's an apt description, sure. Yeah, you know, publicists are, are definitely um, important people in the lives of artists. So that's a good joke. I'm going to use that next time I, I have a call with a prospective client. I'll see how they react to it. <laughs>
1: It is interesting, and I I was laying in bed at 4.30 this morning trying to figure out, well, geez, how are we going to get this conversation rolling? And that made sense, because I started thinking, really, without a a good publicist in your corner, you might very well hear, who? And that's not good for your career.
2: Yeah, that's right, and we certainly want to avoid that. In a musician's day-to-day life, that's, that's definitely not the question that we want to get. If we can try to shine a light on those artists, so that that's not the question, then we are doing our jobs.
1: Obviously, uh, when you're in the business that you are and as rich a history as you have with your background, I think it only adds to the significance and the value of your being a rather accomplished uh, publicist. Your company is called Lydia Liebman Promotions, and you have uh, quite an impressive lineup of clients, I would add to that as well.
2: Thank you. We're very proud of of our roster, and I love all my clients. They are all not just phenomenal musicians, but also, uh, for the most part, <laughs> you know, really wonderful people. And it's just a pleasure to to work with such a diverse group of people. It's it's really it's really fantastic. I feel very lucky to have this this job.
1: <laughs> well, you've worked with a, a number of people, even in the past, uh, that were former clients uh, that maybe mm-hmm. have moved on to uh, different associations or different things in life, if you will. But you also come from a family of musicians, your dad being the master saxophonist, Dave Liebman, and your mother, uh, Karis, an oboist, and it's uh, an interesting background that you have from the personal and family perspective. And I I was reading a a review I found of an album called Familia, which uh, features you including a, uh, a vocalist uh, track or I think three tracks on that particular recording
2: yeah that was um that was a fun little project that I um, I did with my my family and with some of our uh, close musical friends and associates you know it was it was kind of one of those things I mean when I was growing up I was obviously really involved in music of course and so I Sang a lot and played piano and you know did the whole thing. And when I was um, just about, I think it was when I was about graduating high school, maybe just my first year or two of college. My my dad had said, you know, let's just put an album together for fun, and uh, so we did. And sure enough, it ended up getting put out, which was not the original intention, but it uh, it's out there. And um, yeah, every once in a while, I'll be searching for a playlist you know, for some of my clients and I'll see Familia pop up there and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) where did they get this from? But it's, it's, it's a really, it's a good record. And I'm actually really glad I didn't, um, go into performing professionally. I am so much happier and I think a lot more effective and useful, quite frankly, um, behind the scenes, but it is a really nice, uh, keepsake to have. And it's, was a fun process to record with those guys. So that's funny you came across it.
1: (laughs) What's funny about that, Lydia, too, is the fact that uh, there was a review done by Milton Carrero of The Morning Call. Mm -hmm. And the review actually kind of tells your story in many ways in terms of the fact that you are the daughter of Dave Liebman and Karis, as well as the fact uh, that he was writing a description of how uh, your dad was used to hearing you wake up each morning when you were a teenager (laughs) and you had a variety of different music that he would hear coming i presume from the bedroom which uh, was always uh, just i I guess maybe uh, a signal first of all that you were awake but then (laughs) it it, it was the fact also that uh, he was hearing the diversity of your musical taste But in the article, he says, uh, out of nowhere, she was listening to A Love Supreme, which is obviously uh, John Coltrane's masterpiece, and your dad was quoted as saying, you just never know what they're thinking. You (laughs) may think you know, and then here she is as a teenager picking music out of a boxed set of her father's hero, your dad. (laughs) <laughs> truly loved, and uh, was inspired by John
2: Coltrane. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because when you're growing up, it's I think it's kind of standard that you kind of rebel <laughs> against what your parents like. So it took a little bit of time for me to come around to actually liking and listening to jazz. I mean, of course, I always heard jazz growing up, but it took a little bit of time for me to actually come around to it and I, of course, did not tell my parents when I did, because what good teenager would tell their parents what they're doing? So mm-hmm. I um, I sort of came across it, and it was, I, I guess, a little bit of a shock for my dad since he had been very used to hearing not that <laughs> out of my bedroom growing up. That's definitely for sure.
1: Well, the reviewer pointed out that, uh, like you just said, that you kept it secret for some time. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you would not let yourself uh, show that you really like this because it was the same thing that your parents like.
2: Yeah, man, that's the thing about being a teenager, you know, (laughs) you can't let your parents know, know that you actually kind of dig something that they're into. But thankfully, I I grew out of that uh, mindset later. (laughs) Thank goodness.
1: Well, at least you had a hand in some of it. You had some experience with it. You did do a recording with them, and that was uh, delightful. But then, as you said, you began to distance yourself from the performance aspect, and you moved more toward the business side of this business. How did that happen, or or exactly uh, what was the influence there?
2: So the the cute thing about all of it is my my family in general has a lot of business people in in a way my and particularly the women in my family i mean starting with my grandparents on both sides actually having been very involved in in various various things that were you know, they had them in leadership positions. So my my grandmother, you know, was the head of this fashion company, and she ran this factory in Pennsylvania. She had you know all these people she used to report to her, and I I, I kind of saw that from a young age. I saw you know women just in business. My mom had a book distribution business for about 20 years, uh, called Karis Music Services, and she used to distribute the educational textbooks and all that to most of the top conservatories and universities um, here in the U S and a bit overseas as well. The company she worked for was actually based in Germany. So I grew up with her having her, her business. I grew up with her having her, um, going to conventions every year and she used to print up flyers and I used to help her like, you know, organize the flyers by color and all this. I kind of saw it from a young age. um, The whole time anyway. And it was just sort of like a natural progression, I think, for me to eventually step into that role as well. And particularly what it was was when I went to college, I went to Emerson College in Boston and I was studying at the very beginning political communications, which I'm very glad to not be in today but I was studying that and I was also doing a, uh, a joint program at Berkeley College of Music so I was doing professional music with Berkeley and I was doing non-musical stuff at Emerson but the thing about Emerson is they've got an incredible radio station an incredible television station they're known for that type of media stuff and I just immediately got into the radio stuff there And I loved having a radio show. I immediately had a jazz radio program and I took it extremely seriously. I had like Patton Feeney and Kurt Elling on as guests. I mean, I really did the whole nine yards. And that was really like the first exposure I had to this other side of it in a real professional sense. And then over time, getting to understand, you know, what went into running a radio program, dealing with publicists that way, dealing with other radio promoters and dealing with managers and all of that. It really kind of just naturally got me involved in that side of it. So when later on, when I graduated school and I was deciding, you know, what am I going to be doing? um, I had kind of like started this business on the side when I was in college and I thought, well, let me just give it a little bit of time and see how it goes. And of course, the first year was, you know, I moved to New York in twenty, um, late 2014 and it was Rough. I mean, it was hard the first year getting clients, and I was charging like very little money because I didn't feel like I was (laughs) qualified to be paid, you know, a certain amount. It was a lot really complicated uh, stuff going on at the time, but eventually it uh, it really picked up. And about a year or so being in New York, it was really I, I realized like, oh wow, this is becoming a thing, and now it is absolutely. you know, major. I mean, this is how I'm making my living and and I have people I work with and that I'm very busy. And so I'm really thankful that it it happened this way, but it happened completely organically. And it really, I didn't like set out to do this. It just sort of happened um, over time. So here we are.
1: (laughs) You grew up in the Poconos and your family home was there. And there is a place called the Deerhead Inn, which uh, is really quite a venue for, for jazz itself. And oh,
2: yeah. It's a great place.
1: There's a, a who's who of people that have played there. Everybody from certainly your dad, uh, Pat Metheny, Bucky Pizzarelli, uh, Zoot Sims, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. Did some of these people hang out in your house uh, maybe oh, while yeah. they were there?
2: <laughs> oh, certainly. I I always had a lot of... We had a, like, a, a kind of revolving door growing up of jazz greats in the kitchen. And, uh, of course, at the time, I didn't even really know who much about who these people were in the grand scheme of things when I'm growing up. but, it was just very normal. I mean, we, we always had people over and not just people that were playing at the Deerhead, but also people that would just come to either do projects with my dad or maybe they were taking lessons with him. I, I sometimes have clients now that tell me, oh, yeah, I remember when I went to your house, you know, and uh, took a lesson with your dad and I could hear you and your mom, you know, fighting over a shirt upstairs. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, oh, great, that's awesome. <laughs> but uh, it's true, it's true. I, I it's, it's just always was that kind of vibe. So, I was really fortunate to grow up where I grew up and be surrounded by a lot of wonderful musicians and artists from all over the spectrum. And um, one of my favorite things was when I was younger, I didn't really know much about, you know, I mean, I knew enough about jazz, but I didn't know a ton about it. And I remember that um, Tim Reese, the saxophonist who is a good friend of my father's, he plays with the Rolling Stones, had had been at the house for a or to hang out or something. And I, the only thing I took away from that entire um, exchange was that the saxophonist for the Rolling Stones is sitting in my kitchen. And I remember going to school the next day and telling everybody, oh, you're not going to believe he was at my house yesterday. <laughs> and now I, like, look back on it and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, wow, I should have. Uh, that was, I was... Um, Intolerable, but that was uh, such a, a big deal to me growing up. You know, that was my point of reference. So, <laughs> well, but that's um, good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. It,
1: you sound uh, a lot like my wife because she grew up in a show business family. Her father was the producer of the Perry Como show. Oh wow! And her mother was on the original Today Show. And God. when she tells stories about her childhood, and, and she starts talking about the people that came over to their house and hung out there. It was absolutely amazing. It's like, geez, why yeah. didn't I know you then?
2: <laughs> I get that. Yeah, it's, it's it's very fortunate to to grow up in those types of um, environments. And I, at least in my case, I mean, I didn't really understand the magnitude or really get it per se until, uh, a little bit later. It wasn't like, you know, I was walking around as a 10 year old knowing, knowing that I was in the presence of greatness all the time. So, yeah.
1: But I would imagine some of this had some help to you in your development of a career as a publicist, because you need to have a good affinity for the people that you work with, and a good understanding of who and what they are. And having been around these people, I would imagine has played somewhat in your psyche to the fact that, hey, you know, these are just regular people that uh, happen to do extraordinary things. Uh, would would that be a fair description of maybe how this might have led to your? now association and handling of uh, some of your clients?
2: Certainly yeah I, I really do feel that um, you know I, I really feel that a lot of the musicians I work with are really become friend, family friends family by the time you're, you, you've worked with them for a while so uh, in my case it's kind of just I don't know, it just sort of, like, naturally got there with a lot of people, I think, because I was so used to dealing with um, these types of of people growing up the whole time, and it certainly helps, you know, to know people as a publicist. I mean, the main job, really, as a publicist is to be a, a connector and to you know, to communicate with people and foster connections and all of that. So when you're growing up in an environment where you are just naturally making these connections, it it certainly does help later on down the line it, in all ways. And not just dealing with musicians, but also dealing with the media and dealing with journalists and just kind of knowing, um, you know, how people are. It's just human nature. And I met a lot of journalists growing up that were interviewing my dad for things or just happened to be around. So you sort of understand what you know what that's like you understand what musicians are like and from being in radio you understand what radio people are like so you sort of just kind of pick all this up along the way and it certainly has informed the way that I approach all of this and in how I deal with people so it it definitely had an effect and I, I don't really think a lot of it Again, it was clear to me at the time, but in retrospect, when I look back on it, I, I can kind of pinpoint certain interactions or uh, certain experiences I had that really kind of helped me to become who, who I am and what I'm doing today.
1: And it gives you that opportunity for respect and for understanding of the clients that you work with. Sure. Sure. And, and respect uh, not only their professional lives, but also their personal lives, and, and I'm sure each person is a little bit different when it comes to being a publicist, because there <laughs> often is a separation of personal from professional life, and, and many artists make that very clear
2: yeah and it's, it's all different with everyone and I, I think that one of my favorite parts about m- my, my job is that I get to deal with just so many different types of people. I mean every day is just another new day. Uh, and I know it sounds corny, but it really is like a new adventure truly. and uh, some some clients instantly you really, really gel with find them I talk to them more than I talk to my husband you know I'm, I'm texting with them all the time and and then others you know it's very it's very business and purely business. And it's just sort of when I have a new review to send them, I'll contact them or they have a question for me or something like that. But it really does vary per, per person because when you're dealing with people's art, you know, you're dealing with them on a very personal level. And um, you sort of, in order, in, at least in my opinion, in order to have a really effective campaign, you've got to really understand like where your artist is coming from, what's going on in their heads, what their perspective is on things. And you have to kind of like almost embody in a way part of them when you're representing them so that you don't misrepresent them and that you communicate the way that they would want to be communicating as themselves so it is really uh, yeah it's really intriguing actually it's very interesting indeed
1: yes indeed uh, but you also need to be a diplomat uh, and to of be course. able to work that uh, magic that you do
2: Yes, it's a, it's a skill. It's balancing that line of striking the right balance between being a friend and being someone that they can bounce off ideas, and, but also how to handle things, how to handle situations that are maybe not great. I mean, I've had things where clients have said stuff in interviews which has offended people and of course they didn't realize it at the time but you've got to go back and fix that or I've had things reviews come in that are not good and I have to sort of explain to a client maybe what's in the writer's head if they ask when presenting it to them so that they you know don't feel bad about it and it, it's, it, there's a lot of inside stuff that I don't think people necessarily uh, think of a publicist doing but it's all part of our jobs.
1: Well as a publicist Tell me how it is that you find new talent. Do you seek the talent out or do they seek you out because of your reputation and experience levels?
2: I personally have never lobbied for clients. I've never approached anyone asking if they'd want to work with me. I have I've really never done it. I mean, of course, I've, there's been artists that I've wanted to work with or that I like that I said, oh, like, yeah, um, you know, it'd be great to, to have coffee or something and talk about ideas. I mean, I have I've, and, and usually when I say those things, it's it's done uh, more in jest than seriously. I just don't feel comfortable lobbying for myself for for artists. I think that artists kind of they they this is a small circle, and everyone kind of knows everybody, and your reputation goes a really long way. And so I've been extremely fortunate that, in my case, most, well, all the time, artists are coming to me asking, you know, for consideration to be represented. And I get a tons of inquiries a week, and I've been trying to get much better about responding to every single one, but it's really hard. And I just sort of am, am, am in a position currently where I'm just getting a lot of requests. And, you know, some, some of the artists are new to me. Some, some of them I've never heard of before and I don't know who they are. And uh, hearing their music is like their introduction uh, via email is the first time I'm ever hearing their music. And then other times it's people that are super well established that I've known forever or that I've known of my whole life who I am shocked would even consider hiring me. (laughs) So it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's very diverse, but yeah, they generally come to me and it's based on primarily word of mouth. I think musicians talk and, uh, when you develop a good reputation, it gets around so that's how it's been most of the time. I think maybe some some people like stumble on the internet. I think they type in like jazz publicist and they'll message the first page of, of, of results. But most of the time it's people that have been referred or that, you know, have had some sort of connection along the way. And then they find me.
1: Well, you have a rather robust list of clients. Where do you have to draw the line or do you? Just how much can you take on? Because promotions are... are I'm sure not an easy task, and it's a uh, a, a very very busy uh, proposition.
2: Yeah. First of all, I try not to take projects that are that are too similar in a short time period, so they don't inadvertently compete with each other. So, the first thing will sort of dictate based on whatever is is booked. I mean, I'm booked out right now through September, so. I and, and then a little bit beyond that too, but I'm pretty like books basically solid through September right now. And if an artist comes to me and I really love the project or maybe I'm really familiar with the artist and I think it would be great to work with them and they tell me I've got a recording coming out in let's just say September at this point, I would really have to look and I'd have to really see and ensure that there's no possible competition in any of the projects I'm working and to also get a handle on what their goals are and, you know, what they're trying to do because not everybody has the same needs. So you have to just really, you know, be constantly thinking about everyone else that you work with. And sometimes, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes I have to draw the line purely just on time management alone, that I just like literally can't take on another project. And um, I just have to say no that way. But uh, it's hard, because if there's a project I really love, or an artist I really want to work with, and they, they approach me, it's, And I, you know, I really do try to make it work for people, but I also am honest if I think that it's something I wouldn't be able to work or if I just don't have time to do it. So it's a constant process. There's no real hard answer to it. I've had, I mean, I've had months where we've had like over 10 releases in a month and it just happened that way because of other factors. Like last year, the Grammy deadline was moved up a little bit. So a lot of people wanted to release like right um, in August before the August 30th deadline. So because of that, I have like a bottleneck of projects that just all kind of like, they really wanted to get them out before the Grammys. So they all sort of just fell on the same time. And it was terrifying, but they all did really well. So I was pleased, at least, that <laughs> they all did well. But I was also like, oh my gosh, like, I will never take on you know, 12 projects <laughs> ever again. Uh, but like, I'm sure that will happen to me again, because that's the name of the game, <laughs> where, we're, where we're at in, in, in this industry. And especially with everything going on now, um, who knows what things are going to look like in the fall. So uh, yeah, there's no easy answer to that question. But I try to do my best and try to make decisions best I can about who to take and who, who unfortunately, we can't.
1: Is there a particular genre or a particular area that you say that you would call yourself a specialist in, whether it be uh, saxophone players or vocalists or something of that nature?
2: It's a good question. I... I have a pretty diverse roster of of, of stuff by design. You know, I, I really tried to make a conscious effort from the very beginning that I wouldn't pigeonhole too and be too specific with something too specific. So... You know, like, I, I, I don't want to be I wouldn't want to be known as like, you know, the the vocal person or oh, yeah, yeah she handles a lot of Latin jazz. Oh, yeah, yeah she handles, you know, she oh, yeah, if you need a big fan project. Go, go to Lydia for that. Like, I, I really try to not have that happen because there are some publicists and promoters and such that I think of that handle a very specific type of product. And I think that that's great and I'm all for that if that's how you want to, you know, conduct it. But for me, I think that diversity is, is really interesting. And I think that diversity keeps the job fresh. And it also keeps the people you work with, um, you know, on their toes that you can give them different things. And um, we, we know, you know, what writers tend to gravitate towards. So it's not like we're feeding every project to the same people. So that being said, I, I do think, though, that we have a really good roster of Latin jazz artists. Um, My husband is a musician um, named Willie Rodriguez and he helps me a lot with the Latin stuff. So we have really um, a really strong thing there with Latin jazz and music like Spanish Harlem orchestra where it's kind of on the cusp of Latin jazz and salsa music. Um, But I also have some really interesting vocal talent that I work with and a lot of it can be considered crossover stuff like um, Lila Bialy or Emma Frank. You know, these singers are not your typical jazz singers. Nicole Zeritis, Tana Alexa, you know, they really kind of fall on all over the spectrum. And I do think that we have kind of developed a little bit of a reputation for having an open ear in that way, that there are some publicists that are just complete straight ahead jazz and mm-hmm. I think artists kind of know that. So they're not going to approach them with a project that could potentially be considered, you know, folk or R&B leaning or whatever. So it's, um, you know, I just basically just try to take the, the best of what I hear. So yes. if we can be known for having the best stuff, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs>
1: Well, when you finally do have all of your clients and ducks in a row, if you will, uh, where do you focus on for promotions? Where do you think is the best place for trajectory for a particular artist who may be new on the scene or maybe just needs a boost to the career that uh, has sort of uh, flatlined for a little bit?
2: Everyone has a different path. So I, I kind of take someone like um, like Ralph Peterson, for example. I mean, Ralph has, and I have worked together for over over a year, maybe going on, actually, maybe going on two years now, come to think of it. And with Ralph, he is extremely busy. I mean, he released four albums, you know, in the past. In, in the time that we've worked together, he's released four records, and he's about to release another one. So he's constantly busy and is... Um, involved in a lot of different projects. And at the time that he started working with me, he had kind of felt that maybe there wasn't enough attention on these projects. So he... And he's someone who deserves it, for sure. I mean, he played with Blakey. He was, you know, the last drummer to play with The Messengers with Blakey. Like, he's, uh, you know, iconic at this point. So, So we kind of approached it like how do we get Ralph back in back in the spotlight you know it helped that we developed a pretty like well thought out strategy we planned out all these recordings he had a lot of dates that we could work press around and with someone like Ralph it's like a steady trajectory of you know where he is like constantly in the eye of the jazz press because we make sure that they don't ever forget that he's there we send press releases out constantly about his projects He's always doing something new, so we're able to have a lot to talk about. So with Ralph, you know, he got a feature in Downbeat. Um, I think it was the end of 2018, which was awesome because it really kind of reintroduced him to some people and told his story about where he was at professionally and personally. We then were able to kind of parlay that into other opportunities, you know, other features and kind of keep him on a constant stream of doing reviews and stuff like that or getting reviews and things like that. So once you get one big piece, you're able to use that for future stuff, which is really helpful. Um, for an artist that's maybe up and coming or a bit younger and maybe is on their first or second album, you know, with them, we're more concerned about introducing them properly to the press. So we, I already, you know, give a disclaimer to my, my clients of that, that genre of uh, that age rather um, that they may not get, you know, a feature article in jazz times, but it will be, you know, the first time that the, editors of Jazz Times will be formally introduced to their music and will hopefully be able to listen to it and, you know, puts them on their radar. So there's all different reasons, you know, why we, um, why people hire a publicist. But with our up and coming people, that's kind of the the goal is just to really make sure that they're introduced properly. And of course, if someone likes it, and they cover it, that's phenomenal. And that's great. But it all depends. So you know, then we have other projects that have, like, a crossover type of edge. So, like, uh, the Baylor Project, who I work with. I mean, they were nominated for two Grammys a couple of years ago for vocal jazz album and for traditional R&D. So, for them, part of their trajectory is to pick up the jazz press, but you also pick up the R&D and the soul press and, you know, the press that covers, you know, African-American issues and things like that. So, everyone's got a different story. And um, it's up to publicists to figure out, what that story is, and how we can aid that, and that's that's kind of the kind of the deal. There's again, there's no no size fits all answer for it.
1: That may be, and also with respect to what you just said, there there's also a matter of eventually leaving it uh, with a blind faith trust in your hands to yeah. find that right path uh, and to say, listen, just. Cool your jets a moment. You will be there, and I can assure you of this, because we're moving in the right direction right now, and we're doing all the right things. Do you find yes. that uh, that you need to have that pep talk occasionally with clients?
2: Absolutely. And a lot of it comes down to the the patience game. And it is a long game process. Building publicity uh, does not happen overnight. It takes a lot of time, and it takes really diligent and constant um, uh, attention. So nobody is going to, you know, hire me, and then the next day wake up and they're going to be a star. It's really quite a long process to do that. So I would say truly that the vast majority of the people I work with understand that, and they don't even need me to explain that, you know, what the game is. But every now and then I'll have to sit someone down and be like, look. I know that you're frustrated that you've only gotten three reviews, but your album just came out last week, <laughs> and exactly. this you have you have six more months at least of being able to get to garner press. And then, sure enough, by the time that time is over, they're usually like, "Oh my god, this is the best decision I ever made." This, you know, thank you so much. <laughs> now, that doesn't always happen, but it it happens m- most of the time when people kind of freak out. It's really just kind of explaining that it is a. Um, just explaining about how how long the process takes and about what goes into the process, you know. I mean, I send out a press release, and then I have to send out the CD. The CD has to, first of all, make it to the critic. The critic has to, you know, get it, look at it, be interested enough to possibly listen to it, listen to it, then decide if they want to review it, and then to actually write about it and review it. I mean, this is not something that takes, you know, a, a day. So you have to explain these things, and um, most of the time clients get it. I every every you know every year I've got a handful you know one or two that are disappointed because they didn't get this or get that. But honestly, it's usually because for whatever reason the editor of chosen publication decided to pass on it for reasons that oftentimes are out of our control. You know, there's only so much space. Absolutely. Um, but most people do get it, thankfully. So I'm, I'm very glad about that.
1: <laughs> and it's only human nature uh, that you want to have that uh, take off like a rocket. You know, you're anxious to get things going and, hey, why why am I not a star yet? It's all, you know, it's been three <laughs> weeks.
2: Uh, what's it going to take? Yeah, Yeah, but see, that's the thing. You know, it is. It, it really is a, it's a lifetime. I mean, I, I look at artists like my dad, or, you know, artists like I, I represented the late Wallace Roney, who um, tragically passed, as we know, you know, in March. I mean, somebody like Wallace is an example of, you know, you're constantly putting out new music, you're constantly kind of, in a way, reinventing yourself with every project. I mean, my dad's Projects that he released a year could not be more different from each other. I mean, it's insane. So if you look at it like that, where you're, it's just like a constant work in progress. I think that that's a a, a better perspective to have as opposed to like, okay, I'm going to release this album and this is going to be my big shot, you know, at becoming, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and that while that does happen every now and then for some people, like the rare, rare, rare occasion, it will happen to like a um, Esperanza or Kamasi Washington or whatever. Um, Even those people are eventually going to have to put something else out, you know, and have to keep playing the game again. (laughs) So it's all it's all a work in progress. And um, I think when it's looked at like that, then it becomes a little bit more clear about how how this all goes and how it works. So um, but when our people become stars, that's the best thing ever. And it's it's great. It doesn't last forever, which is the other thing. <laughs> we'll have some that get extremely hot. They get all the press in the world. And then, you know, it's, um, if they're not out there touring, if they're not out there keeping active, then that can go away as soon as it got there. And that's the, yeah, that's the thing about fame.
1: <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> it, 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 it's like a vapor. Uh, it, it's yeah. there. You <laughs> see it and then pff, it's gone.
2: Yep, um, exactly. But exactly.
1: not necessarily everybody. And I'm, I'm glad you said that it takes a lifetime or it takes a while because how often have we heard from people that are celebrities saying, well, no, I'm not actually new on the scene. I've been at it for years. And, yeah. and that seems to be a common story over and over again, that it, yeah, it does take a definitely. while.
2: Definitely, It does. And especially... You know something very um, interesting about jazz, particularly, which I think is different from other, from many other genres of music and just the arts in general. I mean, jazz is is really really honors uh, those with a legacy. You know, jazz particularly is has a lot of reverence toward its elders and has a lot of respect and acclaim for those that have been doing this for a while so it's kind of messed up it's like the older you get you know the more revered you become and you know your your fame might not hit you till the very end which is which is kind of crazy but I, it's something that's really unique to jazz, specifically, and I've noticed it more and more in the past couple of weeks with all of the, you know, the tragedy that's been going on with this with pandemic and people are passing, and it's like we are, we really put a lot of, have have so much love and, and have a lot of stake in our in our elders in this business and in this music, so if you look at people like that, I mean, I mean, Lee Konitz was in his 90s when he passed. I mean, I, I don't know if Lee, you know, ever sat back and said, oh, I'm not getting enough press. Like, I'm not sure. if he, if he Maybe he did, you know, as a fleeting moment, but I don't think it was something that he was, ang- you know, actually angry about. And I think that's something to just keep into perspective and to, you know, think about what we are. We're in this music, particularly, and jazz is extremely unique. And I think if we think about it like that, it can sort of calm the nerves of of people that kind of can freak out about things not happening fast enough.
1: Well, jazz, like you say, is truly entrenched uh, in tradition, in respect for the elders, and it makes it difficult sometimes even for very, very talented and diverse artists to branch away from that and get into Mm -hmm. the experimental side or take on some other genres of music. And all of a sudden you find yourself doing more funk or more uh, maybe Brazilian or or, or Mm -hmm. you start to wonder, geez, is this the right thing for me to be doing? Or maybe I should just get back uh, a little bit uh, toward the center.
2: Yeah, you know, I see so yeah, and I'm of the school of people who doesn't think that there is anything wrong with branching out and expanding the the branches of the jazz tree per se. I, I and I understand where a lot of purists are coming from, where they want to keep things, you know, really steeped in the tradition and I, I I mean, thankfully, at least to me, it's appearing less and less, but I know that when there are projects that come out that are really, you know, maybe rooted in in hip hop and jazz or have, you know, influ- like pop influences and jazz and all this, I mean, some people really scoff at it and they're like, I don't, that's not, you know, that's not jazz. I don't want to deal with that. But it, to me, I, I think that it's important, actually, to do those things, because that's how we broaden up our audience. I mean, that's how you bring people in. I mean, if that's what it takes to get someone to find out who John Coltrane is, like, I'm all for it, you know. So um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing other genres and, and doing other styles. And as long as, as the, the jazz language is somehow part of the story as a fan of the music and as someone who's concerned with keeping jazz's legacy alive to me i think that's that's actually that's actually good
1: and see it will also create further opportunity for people like you that will continue to promote to advocate to be that uh, source and that strength for people to develop their careers and what an opportunity it has been today to talk with you, Lydia.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Alan. This is great. This was a wonderful interview, truly. And I, I really hope that I, I, I hope that it can maybe decode the process of, of PR <laughs> to some people that are listening. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity for that. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with jazz publicist, promoter, and music professional Lydia Liebman. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Our next episode will feature the story behind flamenco style and Brazilian jazz of Trio Caliente. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.